some of you guys knew Pastor Jeremy wouldn't be here, so I really appreciate you guys coming. Um, but some of you guys know that uh, me and my wife just celebrated Christmas uh, with our second daughter home from India. Her name's Priyanka. We adopted her 12 days ago we got home. So this Christmas has been very special. And she's here today. She's somewhere. Hopefully she doesn't see me because she sees me and she starts crying all the time. Uh, but she's doing well. Uh, she's doing amazing. She's bonding well. Uh, she's bonding so well that she started fighting with her older sister, Anjali, who's three. So the Hale household is on high stress this uh, Christmas and holiday season. Um, but that's okay. We're happy to have her home uh, this, this Christmas versus her spending it over there. Uh, speaking of Christmas time, uh, for those of you in college or maybe taking classes, finishing up on a, deg a degree, you have been able to get a little bit reprieve from all the tests and the finals, right? Because we're on Christmas break. But did anybody like taking tests growing up in here? Anybody? Show hands. Maybe it was just me. I actually didn't mind class. I was a bit of a nerd because I could prepare. I could read the textbook, get ready, and know what to prepare for. What I had a hard time with was the ACT and the SAT, those standardized tests, because there was really no good way to study. You had to spend thousands of dollars in order to take the prep classes. And we didn't have that, and I didn't feel like doing it, so I did horrible on them. I didn't do so hot on them, to be honest with you. Um, and today, I do have some questions for you guys. Uh, I'm not going to try and trick you like they do on the ACT or the SAT, uh, but they are some important questions that hopefully you've thought about, and if you haven't, you'll get an opportunity to do that today. Um, so with that being said, here they are. First, what are your New Year's resolutions? New Year's resolutions are great because they give us an opportunity to kind of reset and restart the new year. And it's about to be 2020, which is simply crazy to think about. And I don't know what some of your resolutions are, but here is a list of the top 10 New Year's resolutions for Americans. These are the things that people say are important to them. Number one, diet, eat healthier. Probably thought about that. Number two, exercise more. Seen Dan Batnar right here, so you can go see him. Number three, lose weight. Number four, save more money or spend less. Number five, learn a new skill or hobby. Number six, quit smoking. Number seven, read more. Number eight, get a new job, of course, if you don't like yours, that's a good one. Uh, number nine, drink less alcohol. And number 10, spend more time with friends and family. So if you look at this list, it appears that things we Americans value are our health, our finances, our free time, and our relationships. Second question, what are the things that you value? What are the things that you value? Is it your job, your money, security? Maybe it's your home, traveling, taking vacations, friends and family like we just talked about, your car, your spouse, kids, health, sports? Any Ohio State fans? Uh, yeah, uh, Browns fans? So what are the things that you value? The third question, based on those, what are you pursuing in life right now because we will pursue the things that we value. So perhaps some of you are engaged in here right now and working on wedding plans. That's exciting. Perhaps you're already married, maybe working on an adoption or thinking about an adoption, starting to look into it, trying to get pregnant. That's awesome as well. Maybe you're finishing up school, trying to get that degree. A new job, like I said, applying online, going to place to place, uh, filling out applications. Maybe you're working on a home purchase or a refinance, turning in those tax forms, getting all the paperwork ready. Uh, perhaps you're working on the next big family vacation, Disney, uh, the mountains, wherever it is. Hopefully it's warmer than here, although the weather has not been bad here, so I can't complain about the weather. Uh, perhaps you're working on paying off some bills and getting out of debt. Or maybe you're preparing to run a 5K, 10K, marathon, half marathon in New Year. All of those answers, everything I just read off, our New Year's resolutions, what we value, 
and what we're pursuing. Not bad things, but where was God in any of those lists? It was mostly all about ourselves. It's kind of scary to think about. We could just be going through the motions, living life, not taking account of God anywhere. So I've got another question for you. And this one's a little bit tougher, maybe even a little bit offensive. And the question is, who is Jesus Christ to you? Because we all have to answer that question for ourselves at some point in our life. I don't care if you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, European, African, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, uh, rich, poor, doesn't matter. Uh, Even my Sikh and Hindu friends that I met over in India, they have to answer that question for themselves too. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? Was he just a good man from history? Maybe just a wise teacher with some wise sayings, a prophet, the founder of Christianity. So today we're going to be looking at a passage where there is a, a bunch of question asking going on. The religious leaders of Israel come to Jesus and they ask him three questions and attempt to try and trap him. But Jesus has a couple of important questions for them in return. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46, and I believe they'll be on the screens behind me so you can turn there. But before we read it, a little bit of context. So the passage that we're about to read is actually Jesus' last week of his life. They call it Holy Week. So that Sunday is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which they call the triumphal entry. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, upon hundreds of thousands of people are hailing him, uh, saying he's the Messiah. But of course, that Friday, we know that he'll be put to death on the cross, what they call Good Friday, Good Friday for us. And so this passage is probably that Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, and Jesus is gathered in the temple, and the crowds are starting to gather, and he's teaching, and he's telling parables. And so the religious, the religious leaders come up to him, and they start asking him questions, peppering him with questions, kind of like I was just doing to you guys. So the first group that we see to come and approach Jesus, well, actually, there's two main groups, first and foremost, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And we kind of hear about these groups a lot in Scripture. And so who were they? Number one, the Sadducees. They were the conservatives. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And if a law couldn't clearly be found there, then they considered it to be a man-made rule. And so they didn't, they didn't believe in it. So here's the, some of the things that they believed or didn't believe in. Uh, they did not believe that there was an afterlife. They did not believe in angels and demons. And they didn't believe in an unseen spiritual world. They believed the soul perished at death. Socially, these, Pharisees, excuse me, these Sadducees were a little bit more elitist than the Pharisees, so they held some of the very important positions, like the high priests and some of those things. The Pharisees did believe in an afterlife. They did believe in spiritual things and angels and demons, and they had the respect of the masses because they, became, they were part of the common people, some of the working people. So the first group that approaches Jesus is the disciples of the Pharisees, and they start by asking him this question in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're just trying to flatter Jesus there. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. 
If you think about it, that's a, a brilliant response because he's not going to get in trouble with Rome by telling the people don't pay taxes or he's not going to get in trouble with his own people before his time saying pay your taxes to Rome. He just says give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Then in verses 23 through 33, the Sadducees ask him, is there really a such thing as an afterlife? Because remember, they didn't believe that there was an afterlife. So they give this ridiculous situation, this ridiculous scenario to try and make Jesus look foolish. Matthew 22, verses 23 to 31. That same day, so maybe it's later on the day, perhaps the same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So that's actually a good law. That's an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 25.5. Before the days of life insurance and women being able to work on their own and miss independent, this was a way for her to have a life and to be able to uh, have a life after her husband died and if she didn't have a son. The, 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 the husband's brother would then marry her and take care of her. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? I don't know about you, but if I was like brothers five, six, or seven, I would have been like, nah, I'm, I'm good, I'm all right. You know what, actually, I'm seeing someone right now, so I, I can't, so it's not going to work out anyway. Um, but you can almost sense the sarcasm in the question. This is their question. Now then, at the resurrection, Whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? They're trying to make them look foolish. They aren't really interested in understanding what that entails uh, theologically. Jesus says to them, though, in verse 29, you idiots. No, 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 that's not what he says. Um, he says in verse 29, you are an error. You are an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So that's Exodus 3, 6. We know the story where Moses sees God in the burning bush. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said that even after the men, those men had already passed on. So they must be alive somewhere because God was using the present tense. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then verse 33 says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Then the Pharisees themselves come to Jesus in verses 34 through 40 to try and trap him up. This is what it says in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Not smart. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That's like my two daughters who are two and three right now coming to me when they're 15 saying, which one of us do you love the most? Or which one of us is the prettiest? You know you're not supposed to answer that question, right? So they are asking this ridiculous question. Jesus, which of the Ten Commandments is the best? And they're trying to get him to dig himself into a hole some type. So, but again, he answers only as Jesus can. Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, another brilliant response, simply love God, love people, and by default, you'll end up following the rest of all those commandments and all those laws. 
That leads us into our passage today where we'll be spending a little bit of time, Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, where Jesus finally asks his two questions. And let's see if we can break these down because there's a ton wrapped up in his questions. Matthew 22, 41 through 46, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, here's his first question, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Second question here, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I wouldn't be asking him any more questions after that one either. Verse 42, Jesus' first question, he's asking, who is the Messiah? What do you think about him? What's he going to be like? And then he says, whose son is he? So that Messiah, that word Messiah, means anointed one. The Jewish people believed, according to the Old Testament, that a Messiah would come that would save Israel, kind of save the world, and restore the land and the country back to its height under King Solomon and King David. And furthermore, they believed this Messiah would be in the line of King David. This is what 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16 says. The prophet Nathan gets this revelation from David, gets his revelation from God and speaks to David. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the Pharisees actually give the right answer to whose son is he, talking about the Messiah. They said, the son of David. And we can see in verse 12 of 2 Samuel that he will be the Messiah, David's offspring, his own flesh and blood. But it's only a partially right answer. Uh, the Jewish people thought that the Messiah would only be a political, political military leader similar to a King David. So they gave the easy answer, he's David's son. But it also says in verse 14 that I, God, will be his, the Messiah's father, and he will be my son. So they kind of missed verse 14 altogether about the Messiah being the son of God. And I don't think verse 14 is talking about the Messiah being a son of God, like a human being. Because sometimes we're called sons of God, made in God's likeness, human beings. I don't think he's talking about that. I don't think verse 14 is talking about the Messiah just being a Jewish person either. Sometimes the Jewish people are called the sons of God. I think we're talking about something different, deity. Because otherwise, why would Jesus be asking the question, whose son is he? followed by this next question. So let's go to Matthew 22, verses 43 for 44, and look at that second question that Jesus asked. Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, he, as Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him, talking about the Messiah, Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, where does David say that? Jesus was referencing Psalm 110, so let's turn there. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sound familiar, right? That's where Jesus got it from. There's actually two 
huge major things happening in that one small verse of Psalm 110.1. First, we're just going to address the beginning part or the first six words of Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord. Jesus asked if the Messiah is only David's son, why does he call him my Lord? So you see how that first Lord in Psalm 110.1 is in all capital letters and the second Lord is in lowercase letters. That's because they were two separate words, two different names for the same God. The capital Lord is Yahweh. That's like the holiest, the name for God in the Old Testament. And the way our English uh, folks uh, transcribed it in English is Lord, all uppercase. And then the second Lord is Adonai, the, the, the lowercase Lord, is a different name for God. Adonai means uh, Lord or Master or Employer in Hebrew. And so that's what they called uh, God typically in the Old Testament. A lot of the times, because Yahweh was off limits, they called him Adonai. But Yahweh, Adonai, same name for the same person, God. Like Marty and Martin. Some people in here call me Marty, call me Martin. Doesn't matter, but it's two names for the same person, me. So Adonai, Yahweh, same person, God. And so when David says in Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, how can that be? Because David was not a polytheist. He was a man after God's own heart. He was Jewish, and Jewish people are monotheists. They believe in one God. So when he says, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit in my right hand, something strange, something different is happening. Something unique is going on there. Furthermore, in verse 43 of Matthew 22, Jesus says David was speaking by the Spirit. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the Messiah Adonai. But how do we know Psalm 110 is about the Messiah? Martin, I don't see the word Messiah anywhere in Psalm 110. You're correct. But Scripture interprets Scripture. The New Testament oftentimes interprets the Old. So when Jesus references Psalm 110, when he asks the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? He's telling us that Psalm 110 is concerning the Messiah. Again, the New Testament and the Old Testament are connected. It's not a new religion. So the first thing we see in Psalm 110 is we see God somehow speaking to himself. The second major thing happening here in Psalm 110 is when it says, sit at my right hand, sit at my right hand. Since most people were right-handed back then, just like they are today, the right in those days identified a special place of strength, honor, rule, power, might, co-authority, and equality. That's what the right stood for. In this Adonai, the lowercase Lord, will be seated at the right of Yahweh, God himself, the Father, and will be equal in power to God the Father, Yahweh. So Jesus, with his questions to the Pharisees, is saying two things, that the Messiah is Adonai, that lowercase Lord, because that's what he told us Psalm 110 was about, the Messiah. And then number two, he's telling us that Adonai and Yahweh are two persons and that Adonai will have equality with Yahweh. A lot going on there. And to have equality with God means you must be God. So the Messiah will be Adonai, Yahweh, God. So we see the Messiah will be God, but also the Messiah will be a human being, the offspring of David. Was Jesus the son of David? See the genealogies in Matthew 1 or Luke 3 for that. We read that a couple weeks ago. Yes, he was. All of, the, all of the genealogical records were held in the temple so they could confirm that Jesus was the son of David. It's crazy to think about, but Jesus, with his pain, sorrow, and temptation, was a man also. So Jesus was human. 
But at the same time, we know from history that there was no other man quite like Jesus. But is he the Messiah? Is he God? When you read the Gospels, the healings, the miracles, the authoritative teaching, him raising the dead, his supernatural knowledge, himself having the power to be resurrected, he's got to be more than just a prophet or a good man or a miracle worker. And Jesus had another question for his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. He asked them this, straight up. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then John, the disciple, wraps up his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, by saying this. These things are written, talking about his entire gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the Bible tells us, over and over actually, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah, like I said before, is Adonai, and Adonai is Yahweh, so Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Psalm 110 is an Old Testament verse where you can start to see uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is a tough concept to fathom, so I'm not going to try and give you any illustrations or examples to help you understand it. But what I will do is just read for you a couple verses. Number one is Genesis 1:26. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father, of course. And in the creation uh, account, on the sixth day, it says this. Then God, singular, said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may, be, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. So there was someone else with God the Father in the beginning at creation that was made in his likeness and made in his image, and in his image, not made in his likeness, but had his same likeness and had his same image. And we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, that it was Jesus who was with God the Father in the beginning. Verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. How can you be with God and was God? I don't quite understand all that. So the Word was a He. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, Father full of grace and truth. That Word, the Word, Him, the person John was talking about, of course, was Jesus, because that's what his entire gospel was about. So then, uh, so Jesus was the second person. It is the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. And then we have a third person that's part of the Trinity. That's why they call it the Trinity, three. Try the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't call the Holy Spirit an it. The Holy Spirit is a he in, verse, in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I won't read that, but you can check that out. And Paul puts the Holy Spirit on par with Jesus Christ and God the Father in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 14, when he concludes his letter like that with his final greetings. With, like this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He didn't say in the fellowship of Alexander the Great. He didn't say in the fellowship of Caesar. He didn't say of the high priest. He said in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit on the same plane as Jesus Christ and God. And there's other verses as well. The Bible teaches that God is one in being, but three in person. 
Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, I, I can't really wrap my brain around it, my finite brain, but to believe in the God of the Bible, you have to believe that God is three persons and one in being, the Trinity. Otherwise, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. So Peter stated Jesus was the Messiah, so he got it. John and the rest of the disciples and Paul, they got it. But the Pharisees gave an inappropriate response. They said, he's the son of David. He's just a man, a very important person in the line of David, but that was not enough. So what's your response going to be? Whose son is the Messiah? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Here's what some religious groups today say about Jesus. Uh, Muslims, they believe in Jesus. However, he was just one of the great prophets sent to earth in the line of Abraham, Moses, Muhammad. They actually believe that he performed miracles. They believe in his virgin birth, but they don't believe he was God. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that Jesus is the first created being. They believe he was created. They believe he was the archangel Michael, and Jesus is the incarnation of this archangel uh, Michael. Mormons believe God the Father is an evolved man that has become our spirit father, and then Jesus was the first spirit son. And they don't believe in the Trinity and that Jesus is God and that he existed from eternity past. So again, I ask you, what do you say about Jesus? What do you really think? Just a nice man from history, one of the great prophets, wise teacher, son of David, an angelic being, even the first spirit son of God? Or is he the Messiah, God in the flesh, the substitutionary atonement for sinful man? Because there's a belief out there that says, you know, man is basically good. Uh, there's some bad apples out there, but overall we're good and I don't have to worry about anything. But that's simply not true because otherwise we wouldn't have so many wars. Uh, we wouldn't have crime, divorce, human trafficking. We live in a sinful world when you really look at it. Furthermore, Romans 3.10 says, None of us are good. There's no one righteous, not even good. So we as man are sinful and separated from God at birth because God is holy. But thanks be to God, there is a remedy for our sinfulness. He gave us Christ, the God-man, God himself, who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, sinless life, and then God sacrificed Jesus on our behalf. He was fully God, Jesus, but fully man. He died a brutal death, some 2,000 years ago by crucifixion, that's recorded, and he took the penalty that we rightfully deserve. He's called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus had to be God to overpower and conquer sin and death. He had to be man to take the sinner's place. So when you begin to recognize Jesus as deity, as God himself, God begins to change you from the inside out. This is what Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove, you, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the Holy Spirit will fill your life, he'll change some of your desires, and you'll follow those laws, kind of like what Jesus was saying, by default, not because you have to. And when you recognize all that he's done for you, you want to. Here's just a couple of areas that you should start to see change in when you start to put Christ first and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, number one. When you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit enters your life. 
And some of the desires you once had start to change. Not that God is a magic genie that just zaps you overnight and you're a new person, but you should start to see some change. This is what Galatians 5, 19 through 23 says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, <laughs> dissensions, factions, and envy and drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're addicted to porn, if you're addicted to sex outside of, a mar outside of marriage, alcohol, drugs, I don't want to oversimplify it, but you do need to get filled with the Holy Spirit because when you indulge in some of that garbage, it starts to rewire your brain because of the, some of the hormones and some of the chemicals that get released. So you need a new spirit. You need a new man to help you overcome uh, some of that garbage. And it turns you in to the fruit of the Spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit removes fear from our lives. Some of us know about Christ, even know Christ, maybe have accepted him as Lord, but we live in crippling fear, fear of the world, fear of the future, fear of the unknown. Here's what 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 through 18 says. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So if you're living in constant fear, the Bible says you don't have to. If, uh, if you're afraid of something, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If I lived in crippling fear, we wouldn't have traveled to India, uh, went to friends and family, raised support, uh, adopted an orphan who we had never met before, taken into our home, and had two beautiful daughters. So you don't have to be afraid. If God tells you to do something, you just walk in it and you obey. If there isn't fruit, some sort of change in your life, sanctification that's taking place, removing some of that junk, putting the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you may want to question, not me, but you may need to question whether the event, the act of salvation has ever taken place for you. So here's some applications, some things that I think we can apply here in 2020 and get focused on God and off of ourselves. So number one, start your day off with God before you do anything else, before you check ESPN, see if the Buckeyes lost, before you hop on Facebook. Yeah, you can, you can laugh at that because I went to Michigan. So. <laughs> uh, so, so before you do any of that stuff, just take in two to three chapters before you do anything else. If you're not a big reader, you can scroll through the phone and uh, you can, you can play, press, a button, press a button and have the word of God read to you out loud. So there's really no excuse for not getting the word into you somehow. Read the Bible in a year, number two. Uh, sounds like a lot, but with these apps, you can have different plans to tell you how much to read per day in order to stay on pace to take in the whole counsel of the word um, in, a, in a year. Uh, take in large chunks of scripture, saturate in the word of God, as, uh, as my friends like to say. That way you're getting five to ten chunks of large scripture. Bite-sized pieces of verses are good, but when you take in the large counsel, the whole entirety of the word, it starts to sink in and it starts to penetrate you. Number three, uh, pray more. 
don't really need to say more about that, but we want to have a life where we're talking and communing and in relationship with the Lord, not just when you need something as a last resort, but just this is that Bible study we just went through, moving mountains, just constantly without ceasing being in communion uh, with God. Number four is fasting. We will be doing a fast in the new year, so you're more than welcome to join us in doing that. Fasting is a way of saying, God, you're the most important thing in my life, even more than food. You sustain me, you give life, and I'm going to intentionally give up something I enjoy, food and feast and enjoy you. Uh, Number five is just join a Bible study. I can't tell you how critical that is because if you just come Sunday and then you wait till the next Sunday, that's not enough. So with the daily readings, with getting into the Word, and then in fellowship and group Bible studies, you're not only going to meet people and develop deep bonds, but you can come ask those tough questions like we're asking today and get your questions answered and start to move and grow in your belief and, more importantly, why you believe. Number six, get rid of your TV. I know that, means, that sounds impossible, but when we get to heaven, we're not going to wish we had watched more Browns games or Ohio State fans or Michigan games. They, they, they weren't even in it, so that, that, that's terrible. Um, but you're not going to wish that you had watched more sports or more episodes of This Is Us or Fuller House. I kind of like that episode. It's kind of a nice family show on Netflix. Um, so you're not going to wish that you had done some of that stuff because that's not important. That stuff takes up your time. One, one episode of a show is an hour. One, up, one, one game is three and a half, four hours if it goes into overtime. While not bad things, you have to start to make room in your schedules for what's important, and that's God. And number seven is become a part of the church. Don't just come to church and look at the back of someone's head. Get invested. Get involved in the lives by volunteering greeting, serving in the children's area. It used to be at this church, if you served in the children's area, you had to miss service and wait for it to get posted back up uh, later that week. Well, now you can come early, serve at one service, and then attend the other one. So you never have to miss a sermon or miss, act like you're missing uh, the, the worship and things of that nature. But in general, I do think that contemporary evangelical Christianity has become a lot about me. What can the church do for me? What can I get out of this hour and a half service? and less about Jesus, less about others, less about serving, less about discipleship and sanctification. So get out of that mindset. Get involved, jump in, and serve, and become a part of the church. Number eight is obedience. The last thing is simple. Just obey God. If he tells you to do something, do it. If he tells you to adopt, if he tells you to foster, if he tells you to serve, if he tells you to give, if he tells you to stop seeing that person, just do it. Whatever it is, take care of it, and don't wait on it. So I'm not sharing this with you to be a good person or for you to earn your way to God because that's not what I'm saying. The Bible says, for it is by grace you have been saved, grace through faith, not from yourselves, not by works. I'm sharing this with you so you don't waste your life with the times, resources, the time, abilities, resources, talents, and treasures that God has given to you. Because that list of the top 10 resolutions that I read off at the beginning and the things that we value were not bad things. But on that day when we see God, we're not going to be talking or wishing we had lived in a bigger house or driven a better or bigger car, or we won't be thinking about what vacations we missed out on. Again, those things aren't bad, but we need to ensure, we need to make sure we understand and know the Savior and are covered by what the Bible says is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. So we can still do some of those things, but they have to be in the right priorities. You might need to turn your, uh, your, your, your prayer list upside down and get God at the top and some of your top priorities at the bottom. 
So again, I ask you one last time, who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he the Son of God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity? Because you've got to settle this one and wrestle with this one yourselves. Apart from religion, apart from what your family believed growing up, grandma, grandpa, apart from what Kanye believes, he's a believer now, that's pretty cool. Apart from denominations, apart from good works, apart from going to confession, confirmation, even baptism, all good things, because salvation cannot be bought with good deeds. The Bible says we have to put our faith in the finished work of what Christ did on the cross for us. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't leave the room without coming to see me or someone else and asking, what does this mean to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Don't sit around and wait on this one. Don't say, I'll answer that question uh, on my deathbed, because not everybody gets a deathbed. Many of these things Jesus said were difficult to hear. Here's one of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. He didn't say he'll acknowledge the person that attends church regularly, does some religious duties, does good works. He said to have faith and acknowledge what Christ did for us. So this is an important question to answer. Resolve that question Jesus asked his disciples and also the religious leaders. Who am I? Who is Jesus Christ to you? And then allow the Holy Spirit to fill you up and take residence in your life and then produce good works, good fruit as evidence of your salvation, not the cause of it. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity in a warm room when it's cold and rainy outside, Lord, to worship you and to hear your word, Lord, that you penned and wrote down thousands of years ago that's still relevant and, and, and applies to us today, Lord. Uh, we pray that 2020 will not just be ab about ourselves, starting a new habit, dropping a few bad habits, losing a couple pounds. While that's important, Lord, we don't want it to take priority over you, Father. You're the most important thing in our lives, more than uh, the, the, the Browns, the Indians, the Buckeyes, the Cavs, even the Wolverines, Lord. We, we, we don't want junk and uh, just the things that aren't meaningful taking up our time, Lord. We need to make some changes starting today, Lord. Don't wait till 2020. Don't wait till January 1st. Start today, Lord. We want to get in your word. We want to get to know you. We want to commune and communicate and pray to you and with you and just have a relationship. And then some of those things that I talked about will happen naturally for us, Lord, when we get invested and involved and put you as our first priority, most important, Lord. We love you so much. Pray for the person, of course, in here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that they would find me, find someone else to understand what it means to be saved, having uh, faith in you through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.